Well, if uh, you're here for the first time or for the first time in a while, I will just let you know that you are stepping into the fourth of a five-part series dealing with relationships. And uh, today you are jumping into uh, the juiciest of messages. This is going to be the Howard Cosell of sermons. Um, I I have probably, I was thinking back this week, um, I think in the 15 years that I've been a senior pastor that I have preached messages directly on sex a total of four times. And every time, they have been the Howard Cosell of messages. How many of you are old enough to remember Howard whenever he used to call Monday Night Football? You know, the funny thing about Howard was he was voted in the same year the most loved and most hated sports announcer. People loved him or they hated him. Messages on sex that I have preached have been both. Every time I've ever preached a message on sex in the past when we would make CDs of messages, it would be by far the most requested CD of the year every time. But I also get the most pushback from people who are like, why are you talking about sex in church? Well, somewhere we need to get the truth. Somewhere we need to get at the real thing. And I know because it's the, it's the number one objection that I get, you know, well, why in the world do you have middle schoolers and high schoolers in a sermon that's going to deal with, with sex? Look, don't kid yourself. Every teenager is hearing so much stuff. They are being exposed to so much about sex. They need desperately to be exposed to, to truth and some biblical positive messages about this really significant part of life. It's driving so much, and and so much of what's going on is rooted in dysfunction. And today, we want to counter that. We want to counter that with the truth of God's Word. And so, we're going to dive uh, right into this topic. That really is going to be a fun topic. And I will tell you, I've been very careful. Well, you have to be careful when you preach on this, because every sentence has the potential to be a double entendre. You know, everything. So, listen, if you hear that in anything that I say, just let it go. I haven't, that nothing's intended with double meanings, and it's just hard to talk for this long and, and something not sound funny. So nothing's intended to be that, you know, that kind of silly. Uh, but we, we want to dive into this thing that is such an important subject as we talk about great sex with no regrets. Would you agree that the title itself points to our brokenness that most people would go, sounds great, wouldn't know what that's like? Because most people either settle for something that is far from great sex, it's broken, it's subpar, it's, it's something that whatever it is, you couldn't put the word great in front of it. Listen, I counsel with enough church people to know great is not usually the adjective that they would use to describe their sex life. And the idea of sex without regrets is the other half that most people can't relate to. That most people have a lot of regrets about what they've done sexually. So what I want to share with you today is a message that's full of hope and that's positive and that is carefully designed to be equally designed for people who are single and people who are married since we are a, a mixed group. Five truths that I want to share with you today to speak to this area of life. And the first one is just good news on the front end. And that is that sex is not God's big no no. It is his big yes. You know, it's easy to feel like that sex is that subject that we're not supposed to talk about out loud and that God's a little bit embarrassed about. And we probably ought to be embarrassed that the preacher's going to stand up and talk about this for the next 45 minutes. And, and I just want to tell you, this thing is not an accident. It was designed by God. He loves it. And he went to great lengths 
to make us the way that he made us as sexual beings. You ever just stop to consider how much extra time he put into to wiring you so that sex is such a special thing? I mean, think about it. Most all the other animals on earth, they have to, to get together in order for that species to continue. But it's not a special thing. It's a momentary thing, and it's, it's done and it's over with. And yet for us, God has wired us in such a way that there are countless nerves running to those particular parts of the body so that this is a face-to-face encounter, which is quite unique, by the way. That's not how animals mate. But for humans, it's, the, it's this real personal encounter that is designed not just to be done three or four times in the course of a life so that the species continues. It's designed to be so incredibly pleasurable that you want to run back there again and again and again. And God wired you in such a way that you get this dump of chemicals in your brain so that it is almost like you suddenly went high on drugs because of what you just experienced in your love life. And God said, that wasn't an oops. I thought a long time about that. I wanted to make this so good. And, you know, everything that God does in the natural, it's giving us a little taste of something that's a bigger reality in the supernatural. Sex is definitely designed that way. Think about it. Sex is that one place where in a relationship you are so intimate, you are so willing to be vulnerable that everything can be stripped bare. You can be completely exposed and yet it's, it's totally safe and loving and positive and great pleasure comes from that. And God is saying, you know, that's just a little glimpse of how I want you to be with me, that everything can be laid bare and you need not be afraid. I want total intimacy with you and it's going to be just good that comes from that. There's not going to be shame and embarrassment that drives this thing. So sex is a big yes from God. Proverbs 5 is just one of many examples that we could give of how much of a yes it is from God. When it says, rejoice in the wife, there's an operative word, wife. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. I mean, so much good stuff just in those two verses. All times. Always, God is saying, think about how good it can be. I want you to just know that kind of joy all the time. I want you to be filled with excitement, with delight. And I want you to be just, you get that word, intoxicated? It's like, I want it to be so good, it's just almost like you're drunk with love whenever you're with your spouse. Who in the room thinks that sounds good? I think that sounds incredibly good. And God is the one who's telling you it ought to be this way. I designed it this way. Young people, sex is not a big no-no to God. Sex may be God's greatest invention on earth. It's absolutely that good. But here's the catch. For it to be that way, you've got to use it in the way that he designed it. Sex is so much like a train and train tracks. You've got to have those two parts. You know, and... Sex is supposed to involve two parts, a man and a woman. You've got to have the train and the train tracks if you're going to get anywhere. And as long as that train runs on the tracks, it can go wonderful places and things are going to be smooth. But the moment that that train gets off the tracks, the moment that it goes somewhere that it wasn't designed to go, there's going to be a train wreck. And the moment that one set of tracks tries to let two trains run on it, there's going to be a train wreck. God has a plan, 
And if we'll do it by his plan, it'll be a beautiful thing. But we must operate within the boundaries that he gives. And so at that point, I'm going to say what you fully expect me to say in a message like this. The second truth that sex is designed as a unique benefit of marriage. This is so important. In America today, 51% of adults are married. That means 49% are not in a relationship where sex is an acceptable option. Now, Paul wrote a lot about this. He was a single man. And when he wrote to the Corinthians, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, he's addressing a problem that they're having where single people are being persecuted because they're single among the church people. They're being made fun of. It's like, you know, what's wrong with you? Are you gay? Or is there something messed up about you that, that you're not married? And by the way, even though people don't say that, it's easy as a single person to feel that way in church, isn't it? It's really easy to feel like there's something wrong with you that church is for married people. And, and you know, I'm an oddball if I'm not married. Hey, it just means you're half of the population of the, of the country today. If you're single, it doesn't mean anything's broken about you. And what Paul says in this letter is, hey, if you're single, it doesn't mean that there's something broken about you, that there's something wrong with you. And he says, actually, there are some huge advantages to being single. He goes on to say, you know, I kind of wish all of you could be like me. I wish you all could be single because it gives us the opportunity to focus our lives on serving the Lord and making a difference. And we don't have to busy ourselves spending so much time and energy trying to satisfy a spouse. That's what he says. But he also, in that same chapter, says, but I know how it really is. That people burn with passion and desire for someone. And because of this great desire that God has built into us, it is a good thing for men and women to marry. And it's in that conversation that he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 2, Each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. And the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. So do not deprive each other of sexual relations. It's a really cool picture that Paul is giving us. That God has built this thing into you, this tremendous desire for sexual fulfillment. And he's saying, you know, by God's design, that should be satisfied if that's a strong desire in you. Now, Jesus pointed out that God gives a special gift to some. That they aren't driven by that passion, that they are content to live their lives single and they don't have to have sexual satisfaction to be happy in life. And he says, you know, that's a special gift from God. But Paul said, for most, that's not your gift. And so you're going to have this tremendous drive. And he says, hey, here's how it ought to work. There ought to be one man committed to one woman for life. And in the context of that relationship, here's the really cool thing. This drive that particularly for men is so strong that's there every day. And through certain you know years of life, it's there for like every hour of every day. That drive that is so strong. He said, here's God's plan for that. You find the person that's the right mate for you. You commit to each other for life. And you just have all the, the loving that you want. Because what you do in that relationship is you give complete control of your body to your mate. And you just say, I am here for, for you, for your pleasure, for your good. And so it's not like, well, if you're good to me, if you treat me right, if you do everything just right and check all the boxes and hopefully I'm feeling good and, and everything, you know, you might get lucky tonight. No, if that's how it works at your house, it's broke and it needs fixing. So we're going to meddle today. We're going to talk about this area that people don't talk about. And oh, by the way, do you know the two subjects that couples, married couples, are least likely to talk about in the course of their marriage? The two least discussed topics are death and sex. We're not going to talk about death today, but we're going to talk about sex. 
And we need to learn to talk about this within our marriages, within our relationships. You better be able to talk about it when you're in love with somebody and you're not married to them. Because you'll wind up in a bad place if you can't learn to talk openly about this. Paul said, this is designed to be fully enjoyed by each other where you give yourself to your mate. And it's not about, I'm going to hold this back and give it to you if you treat me right. He says, no, you're there to fulfill this desire and the other one so that you don't get to the point of making bad decisions that are, are rooted in unfulfilled needs. So he gives us this picture of what it ought to be like in marriage. And then he tells us in so many other places about how critical it is that we stay on track in this area. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, God's will for you is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like pagans do, who do not know God and his ways. You want to know the will of God for your life? A big part of it is to be holy and to not engage in sexual sin. Uh, here, it, it's worth just doing the basics of saying, okay, let's define sexual sin. Paul spells it out a bunch of places. Uh, one of those is 1 Corinthians 6 where he says, Don't fool yourselves, those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. You know, in an age when it's like, well, everybody's doing it. Is it really that big of a deal? I don't know. You tell me. I cannot begin to tell you how many times in the Word of God he homes in on the issue of sexual sin and says, if you make this the practice of your lifestyle, don't kid yourself. Don't think that you belong to the family of God because you don't. Doesn't mean this is an unforgivable sin. It means that if this becomes a lifestyle for you, you better take a real hard look at your heart and ask yourself whether you belong to Christ. Because he says this isn't a lifestyle that lines up with belonging to God. God takes this really, really seriously. Now, it may seem silly to do this, but I'm going to do it because I understand what's going on in the culture of, of teens and 20-somethings today. That there's all this confusion and, and blurring of lines as to, okay, but what is sex? There, there's been this whole movement of, if it's not intercourse, it's not sex. Can we be really clear about this? Passages like the one that Paul just gave us are driving home the idea. There are lots of different things that qualify as sex and sexual acting out. And it's not hard to figure this out. I mean, do you understand adults that in youth culture today... Oral sex is not sex to teenagers. It's just hooking, up, hooking up. It's just going down low. You don't even have to be boyfriend and girlfriend to do that anymore. And if you haven't been exposed to youth culture, let me tell you, you'd be shocked to find out what is normal. That, that now, I, I mean, kids that are from great homes and who go to church and are in youth group, that it is very normal for girls to just offer to do this for guys. And it happens in places that you wouldn't imagine. It is so commonplace in school and, all, I mean, just all kinds of places that you would never dream that that's going on, that it's happening. Because that's not sex. Well, let's just be really clear. Just as Paul has given us a lot of different specific terms for it, we're not going to go back and pull the Greek apart, but I will tell you, if we read it in the Greek, we would find that in the New Testament, Paul just spells out that, you know, sex between two people who are not married is sexual sin. There's a term for that in English, we call it fornication. That sex between two married people who are not married to each other is sin. That's called adultery. Sex between two people of the same sex 
He, he lumps that right in there with it. Once again, that, that that is sin. Now, what's sex? Sex is simply the giving or receiving of pleasure with another person where you use your sex organs to bring that about. And we don't have to get graphic about that. It doesn't take a real bright person to figure that out. If you are using yours or another person's sex organs to exchange pleasure, guess what? You are entering into sexual conduct that's either right or wrong. If it's inside a marriage between you and that person, it's good. If it's not, it's sexual sin. Anything else need to be said on that? This would mean no. <laughs> we're, we're all real clear on that. Students, are we clear on that? Sexual sin is anything outside of marriage where we're using our sex organs to give or receive pleasure. Now, here's a good question. If this is something that God is so crazy about, that God designed into us, and He dumps all of these hormones that at a really early age in life stir up such intense feelings. This is really a, quite a conundrum to understand why at such a young age we're sexually mature. And by that, I just mean we're so capable of the act. And hormones are just like holding our brains hostage to, to want to chase after that before we are emotionally mature enough to be able to handle a, a committed long-term relationship. It, it really is a conundrum as to why it all works that way, but it does. This is what makes it such a tricky period from early teenage years until 20-something or whenever we're ready for that. You know... Is it really that big a deal? And, and why is it a big deal? You know, it, wouldn't it just be better to, to try things out and to live together? Let me tell you, it, it just doesn't work when we go that route. Now, let me just say, for those who would consider that route, young people, if you think, you know, maybe it's smarter to just try being with somebody. It's kind of like test driving a car. That's always the example that you're given. Let me just point out to you seven of the things that you can count on if you try it out but instead of doing it God's way. Seven things that statistically have been found to be true. If you just shack up instead of getting married and doing this God's way in the context of marriage. If you choose to just live together and have sex together without being married, these seven things we know to be true. You're 50% more likely to get divorced if you go ahead and marry that person later on if you decided to shack up first. 50% more likely to end up in divorce when you do get married. <clears throat> Secondly, on average, you'll make far less than your peers who choose to get married. Isn't that interesting to know? The people who just choose to live together make far less money. Number three, you'll be, you or your mate will be more than four times as likely to be chronic alcoholics. This is sounding better and better, isn't it? Number four, people who live together first report lower levels of relationship satisfaction. They wind up less happy in those relationships. That's no shock. Number five, people who live together outside of marriage have far more health problems and hospital visits than people who are married. Interesting. Number six, and maybe this is the most striking of all, those who choose to live together outside of marriage report lower levels of sexual satisfaction than married people do. Don't miss that one. How many times have you heard people say, why ruin a good relationship? Why ruin a good sex life by getting married? It's a myth. It's a lie. Marriage doesn't ruin a good thing. Ruin a, a, a marriage allows a good thing. It's, it's misusing this that winds up ruining it. And then the, the last thing, don't forget this one. 
people who live together statistically are far more likely to wind up with one or the other abusing their mate or abusing the children that come out of that relationship. These are far more abusive relationships. It's not rocket science to figure out these are terrible trends that are consistently tied to living together, to having sex together outside of marriage. When I think about this subject, one of the things that comes to mind as to why Why does it have to be, I mean, here we are that 49% of the adult population isn't married and most of them have a strong sex drive. Why has God designed it this way where we've got this huge stipulation that you need to make a lifetime commitment in order to to go there? Well, to me, I I understand analogies. And and to me, a good analogy is sex is a lot like flying an airplane. You know, I... For me, as a, I think it's a guy thing, but from the time I was a little kid, the earliest memories that I have, I wanted to fly an airplane. I mean, I can remember as a four-year-old, and I had an older brother who became an aerospace engineer, so I know part of it I was copying him. But, you know, we were always trying to design airplanes and dreaming of how young would we be when we'd first get to fly. We just, we wanted to fly an airplane. I remember the first time we ever got to fly, we had an uncle who was an FBI agent who was a private pilot. He flew down and took us up in his plane, and it was like, yes, finally we get to fly. Such a cool thing. By the way, how many pilots do we have in the room? How many of you now or sometime in the past have been? My father-in-law, the pilot in the room. You'll, you'll definitely relate to some of what I'm talking about. But I remember being so amazed that when we went up and so jealous because when we were flying, my older brother got to sit in the co-pilot seat and he got to fly the plane, even though he was still just a kid. You know, of course, you know what I'm talking about when I say that. He, he got to hold the wheel and put his feet on the rudder pedals. And for, for a little while, he, he's the one who's, you know, barely moving the yoke as, as we're flying. But it's like, he flew the plane and he's only a kid. That's so cool. Here's the amazing thing about flying. I mean, flying is to getting around what sex is to relationships. I mean, think about it. There's a lot of different ways you can get around. You can walk, you can run, you can ride a bike, you can drive a car, you can take a train. And all those are, are good ways to get around. But, I mean, they can't hold a candle to flying, can they? I mean, some of you drive like you think you're in an airplane. My wife included. I mean, it's just that, that, that is just the truth. You know, you don't want to be b- held back and bound. You need to learn to fly. Because when you fly, there are no speed limits. You can just soar when you fly. It's so cool. Well, you know, that mode of transportation compared to all others is like what sex is compared to every other thing in a relationship. Friendship is good. And, and you know, all the other things you could say about relationships can be really good. But, man, sex is just soaring. It is, it is the flying of relationships. And here's the thing about flying a plane. You don't have to know a lot to fly a plane, do you? I mean, Steve, you could probably coach somebody up in an hour and at least get them to where they could get off the ground and fly around for a little while, couldn't you? It's not that complicated to get it up in the air flying and to, for a little while, keep it up in the air. You don't have to be a genius. Your buddy could probably tell you enough to get that plane up in the air and to fly around for a little bit. And sex is that way. A buddy in a locker room, a buddy at a spend the night party could tell you enough about sex For you to be able to get off the ground and to take it for a spin. But you're never allowed to fly with just that much information, are you? Why? We all know the reason why. Because it's not about getting off the ground. And it's not about just sort of circling around the eastern shore. It's all about the landing. And nobody could tell you in a few minutes enough information for you to safely land an airplane. You're going to crash and burn. You'll never land this thing. Not on instinct. 
It takes lots of training. It takes lots of preparation. And the truth of the matter is, you don't get to fly an airplane until you have been trained, prepared, you've invested the time, and you're given a license that says you now know enough about this that you, you're not just up there to take it for a spin for a few minutes. You know how to land it, and you know how to take care of that aircraft when it's on the ground. Because, oh, by the way, airplanes spend a lot more time on the ground than they do in the air. And when those planes are on the ground, they require meticulous maintenance in order for them to be safe to take up. Isn't that right? And you don't just know that by instinct. And that's how relationships are. The truth of the matter is... Yes, married people, you spend a lot more time on the ground than you do in the air, don't you? Hey, if you spend more time on the air than in the ground, you write the book. <laughs> Relationships spend more time on the ground than they do in the air, and they require a lot of maintenance when they're there, and you've got to know how to land this thing. And that takes real training. That takes real preparation. God doesn't want you to crash and burn. We won't have testimony time this morning, but if we did... A lot of us could tell about crash and burn relationships. Woo, it was fun while you were flying around. It's easy to fly around. And you, it's easy to find people to fly with. But you fly with somebody before you've done the preparation, and you will crash and burn. And people will be hurt. They'll be maimed. They'll be scarred by that. And the reason for this is because something more than a physical act happens whenever we have sex. Jesus said that when a man and woman come together, the two become one. And he's not just talking about in that moment physically having your bodies joined. You see, God has designed us different from the other animals. We, we bear the image of God, and in that we are spiritual beings. We, we have not just a body, but a soul and a spirit. And when we become physically one with another human being, at a very soulish and spiritual level, we are one. The same term is used for communion with God... A spiritual, spiritually intimate encounter, that same term is used for a man and a woman being physically intimate. He makes us one in such a way, if you could imagine, as weird as this sounds, if you could imagine my two hands when they come together and when they just get totally tangled up like this, if you could picture that God works a miracle when two hands come together as one like this, if you could imagine the skin of my two hands just melding together so that it's not skin from two hands, it's just one body of skin that completely now engulfs two hands. This is what God does when He makes the two one. They're no longer separate. They are one. But here's what happens when you give yourself away again and again to one relationship and then you pull away and you, you come and, and are united in another and then in another. What you're doing is if, if you could picture my two hands bound together just by one body of flesh but then having to just pull them apart even though that flesh is all together and you finally just tear it loose. Can you picture the bloody mangled mess that that would cause as flesh is ripped off of bone and muscle and fingernails are ripped out? What a horrible, painful mess that would make. That's what happens to you on the inside when you give yourself away and you are soulishly and spiritually and physically united with a person and then you tear that relationship apart and you jump into another one. That is a picture of what is happening to you on the inside. Every time you link up and tear yourself apart. Someone has rightly said of the trauma of war that war diminishes the souls of men. 
because the exposure to that trauma, it's like it chips away and steals a part of your soul day by day. It's why you hear so many times people who have been truly in combat and they come back home and they're just like a hollow shell of who they used to be. Because just piece by piece, a part of them has been taken away. They've been robbed of that and they don't know how to get it back. The trauma of entering into a sexual union with someone that you're not married to and being torn out of that again and again does the same thing. That kind of trauma diminishes the souls of men and women. Because every time you're with somebody different, you truly leave a part of yourself with them. Not to be reclaimed as you move on down the line. Now part of what happens there... This is the last thing I'll say about this and then we'll move on. But a part of what happens that so many people fail to recognize, and this is huge, is that there is a soul tie that is left with every person that we have been with physically. Now, we, there's something in the natural that, that teaches us about this truth. You, you know the principle, and young people, it's really important that you guys get this principle, that whenever you sleep with someone... In terms of what you're physically exposed to, it is the same as you're not just sleeping with them, but you've slept with everyone that they've slept with before you. In terms of diseases, you're exposing yourself to the diseases that not only they, but everybody that they have slept with and everyone that they have slept with have carried. It just gets passed along. This is why STDs are so rampant. You're exposed to all this because of the connection that's made. That is a picture in the natural of a deeper spiritual truth that whenever you are sexually united with someone, there is a soul tie that's created. Picture it, if you will, as just an invisible pipeline that is now connected between you and this other person. And guess what gets to pass in that pipeline? Any demonic spirit that you or that other person has attached they now have a free pass to go back and forth between you. doesn't mean they'll stay with you forever, but it means now, until that's ever addressed, it's like there's a doggy door in my life. And there'll be seasons where I'm doing pretty well, and there'll, there'll be seasons where things that I cannot control are happening in my head, in my heart, in my emotions, in my body. Guess what? There's an invisible tube attached to a doggy door that spirits are now getting to move back and forth between me and every person that has ever had sexual contact with me because God has designed me as a spiritual being. Those are soul ties and they can be severed once and for all so that those doors are closed forevermore. It's why we do what we did Thursday night. Harold Bondenstein here on the front row. We, we've co-led this, this monthly session that is designed as a teaching but also a get down to doing business of closing the doors that the enemy has to torment us and control us and moving forward in freedom. This is one of the doors that has to be closed. Doors that have been left open for some people for many, many years because of sexual relationships that created soul ties that have never been addressed. We're playing with fire when we do this outside of the safety of God's design plan for how we handle our sexuality. So it's a benefit that is designed for those who are married only. And I'm going to say two things to married people and to people who ever plan to be married about Hey, how to enjoy this at the level that God desires. So the third truth is this, that great sex begins in the kitchen. You didn't expect to hear your preacher say that, did you? I had actually written this point worded completely differently. Didn't, didn't sound like that at all, but the principle was the same. And, and Jackie pointed out to me as we were talking about this message this week, she said, be sure and, and remind people that great sex begins in the kitchen. That is... 
that is not something kinky. That's not about countertops or appliances. This is, this is not at all about that. This is about a very real practical truth. Jackie asked me two weeks ago when we'll be talking about sermons, and she asked me, I mean, she was already nervous because she knows that I use her for illustrations a lot of times. And, and, and she said two weeks ago, I mean, I could tell that she's thinking like, why do you have to talk about sex? And she said, what are you going to say about sex? And I said, you know, what are you actually going to talk about that day? I said, well, the one thing you can bet is safe is you. You will not be an illustration of anything in this one sermon because, you know, this, we will not go there. But she made a great point, And I, I used her wording instead of mine. There's a book by the same title, The Great Sex Begins in the Kitchen. To understand that principle, I'll point out three little things that Paul said about love. First of all. Husbands, go all out in love for your wives in Colossians 3. In the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, he says, Love cares more for others than for self. And then finally in Galatians 5, serve one another humbly in love. Why is it that great sex begins in the kitchen? Because great sex is simply a reflection of a great relationship. Sex is not what defines intimacy. Sex is the thing that tells you whether or not you have a truly intimate relationship. I love the, the quote here from Alice Freiling in her work, Why I Wait for Sex, when she says this, that sex is an expression of intimacy. It's not the means to intimacy. True intimacy springs from verbal and emotional communion. True intimacy is built on a commitment to honesty, love, and freedom. True intimacy is not primarily a sexual encounter. Intimacy, in fact, has almost nothing to do with our sex organs. A prostitute may expose her body, but her relationships are hardly intimate. Wouldn't you agree with that? Young people, sex is not the way to get to intimacy. Single people, women particularly, God's given you this great desire for intimacy, for, for meaningful, deep connections in a relationship. Sex is not the way to get there. Sex is an expression of and reflection of the fact that you have arrived there in a one-on-one -on -one committed relationship. The reason we say that great sex begins in the kitchen is because so much of the real stuff of life happens in the kitchen. Now, I'm going old school on you when I'm referring to the kitchen because I think in terms of a kitchen like how I grew up and actually how we live now, that the kitchen is not just the place where you cook, it's also the place where you eat. You know, you eat at the the kitchen table. We don't ever eat in the dining room unless small groups over. We, you, know, you eat in the kitchen. You do life in the kitchen. Think about how much of life is done in the kitchen. The kitchen's the place where so much stuff goes on, so much communication, communication at the table. And when you think about all of life that happens in the kitchen, you can tell a lot about a relationship by what does and doesn't happen in the kitchen. Think about the things that happen there. It's the place where somebody puts away all the groceries. It's the place where somebody hopefully does a lot of cooking. It's the place where the table gets set. Hopefully it's the place where meals are shared and conversations and lives are shared together. The kitchen's the place where somebody's cleaning up a lot of dishes. The kitchen's where somebody's putting away food. The kitchen's where trash needs to be taken out a couple of times a day. The kitchen's where everything's got to be wiped down. The kitchen's just where a lot of life happens. And you want to take a look at a family. If you, if you could be, you know, the nanny cam watching a family to see what's going on, you wouldn't have to do the morbid thing of peeking into their bedroom to know whether or not there's intimacy. You watch what happens in the kitchen, and you'll know whether there's intimacy or not. In so many families, the traditional mindset is, 
Well, the kitchen is the place where the woman's supposed to work. So you cook it, you clean it, you set it up, you clean it up, you take care of everything in there, and we'll come in and eat it up. That's our job as men. And then we'll go kick back on the couch or in the recliner, and we'll watch TV while you take care of all that stuff in the kitchen. And in the normal household today, we're going to have the TV on while we eat the meal that you fixed. Let me paint a different picture for you. In a home, in a marriage where there's real intimacy, we share what happens in the kitchen. No one person carries the load of doing all those things. You want to be intimate? Do what Paul described. Go all out, men, in your love for your wives. Real love serves one another. Real love puts the needs of the other ahead of your own needs. Real love says, hey, let me set the table. Let me help with that. Hey, you cooked it. I'll clean it up. Real love says, let me put those things away. Real love absolutely says, I'll take out the trash. Let me make your, your responsibilities less and mine greater so that this is balanced out. And absolutely real love says, let's sit down at the table and connect. Let's talk over a meal. Let's don't kill the moment by having the TV blaring the whole time. Now are you beginning to appreciate why great sex begins in the kitchen? Because great sex springs out of a great relationship where two people care enough about each other that they serve one another, that they look for ways through the day and through the week to serve each other, to make one another's lives better and easier. And oh, by the way, for no extra charge, let me throw this in. Don't think for a minute that your kids have a hope of one day having a great love life or a great relationship if they're not taught to participate in family life in the ways that we're describing. Don't think for a minute that your children or your teenagers can grow up in an environment where they don't participate in the things that I just described, but one day, somehow, when they're grown and grown, they're going to magically suddenly buy into sharing in those roles that... Somehow God's going to speak the magic words that they're going to suddenly value serving others and sharing meals and conversing and connecting. It ain't going to happen. You've programmed them for failure if you've let them just get off to never participate, to never share as a family, to never participate in responsibilities. We learn to serve when we're growing up. It's much harder to teach an old dog new tricks, isn't it? If we don't learn as kids and as adolescents to share in these times where we're serving each other, where we're sharing, where we are participating in life together. Real intimacy begins in the kitchen. Guys, if we could just translate to you that to you more succinctly for your wife. You cleaning up the dishes, taking out the trash is like foreplay for her. It, it says... Hey, I love you. I value you. That doesn't mean that's why you do it. But investing in the relationship, that's what helps to deepen intimacy. Fourth truth is this. Keep it fresh, keep it real, and focused on your spouse's needs. The, I, my background uh, earlier on in life was psychology. My undergraduate degree was in psychology. And for those of you familiar with the world of psychology, you know what the letters DSM mean. The Diagnostic and Statistics Manual. It is the Bible for all psychiatrists and psychologists. It's huge. 
It is the book that defines every mental disorder that you can imagine. It spells out what they are and the symptoms that, that you have and how many of those symptoms that if you have this, you know, if you have five out of these nine, then you're, you know, technically diagnosed as having this disorder. It di- diagnoses every disorder and it gives the treatment plan for all of them. Here's the interesting thing to know related to this subject. In the DSM, there are almost 200 pages of sexual disorders. That's like a book unto itself on mental and emotional problems that are tied to problems in the bedroom. Almost 200 pages. But here's the more striking thing to know about that. Of those almost 200 pages of problems, almost every single problem diagnosed in the DSM has as a primary part of its treatment course the words, decrease performance anxiety. Do you get that? Let me put it another way. Almost every major form of sexual dysfunction is tied to being uptight about feeling that there's some expectations of of how I've got to do this and how I've got to perform and I've got to play a role and I've got to be something particular that you say that I've got to be. And it creates all this anxiety that results in dysfunction. Keep it real. So much of our brokenness and dysfunction is rooted in acting out the garbage that we've seen on the screens or that we've heard in the filthy lyrics of rotten songs and all of these images that are portraying for us some idea of what intimacy is supposed to look like that isn't at all who we really are. Be real. Be yourself. Acting ought to be reserved for people on a stage, not for the bedroom. Everybody with me on that? Don't try and play these crazy roles. Don't try and be something that you're not. Don't try and and fake what's happening in there. Keep it real and keep it fresh. Isn't it interesting to know that God, when he put together the Bible, included an entire book that from start to finish is an erotic love poem? That blows my mind. I mean, that's like the book we we dodge in the Old Testament, isn't it? Song of Solomon. I think we'll skip on over them. It's just... It's crazy to consider God put an erotic love poem in the Bible for us to read. And he put it there for the, you know, where kids get it. It's in the kids' Bibles. It's, it's pretty wild. And in that, let me just read you a couple of passages that just are a reminder about keeping it fresh. This is Solomon and his bride, their conversation back and forth about each other. It begins with the woman speaking. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, it begins with Solomon speaking where he says of her, Pendant earrings line the elegance of your cheeks. Strands of jewels illumine the curve of your throat. And then she responds, When my king lover lay down beside me, my fragrance filled the room. His head resting between my breasts. And you, my dear lover, you're so handsome. And the bed we share is like a forest glen. And then later on, he says of his, of his love, You are slender like a palm tree and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the tree and take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like grape clusters and the fragrance of your breath like apples. May your kisses be as exciting as the best wine. I am my lover's and he claims me as his own. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a picture of how it's supposed to be? Two people deeply, passionately in love with one another and enjoying each other. And a part of what's so rich in that is you can tell that they're working at it. 
that they're keeping it fresh, that she's trying. I mean, she's wearing earrings and, and she's wearing jewels to bed. And, and, you know, she's looking at him and saying, you, you are beautiful. And just in everything, in talking about the bed and just everything about this whole setting. And she's saying, you know, your breath is as fresh as apples. You can tell these are two people who have prepared themselves for this moment. Listen, if you're married... And you've awakened next to another normal human being who's been asleep for the last several hours? That is not a description, is it? Your breath is like apples which have rotted on the tree. You know, that's the real thing when you're waking up next to somebody, isn't it? I don't even know how they get to this. Listerine had not been invented yet. Thank the Lord for that stuff. It's, it, it helps. Just a reminder that, you know, it takes some effort and some thought and some preparation to make it fresh and fun. I don't care if you've been married 40 years, 50 years, keep it fresh. Be thoughtful about how you present yourself from the way that your breath smells to what you're wearing and what you've done with your hair. And, and guys, you know, we've got some disadvantages. Lingerie does not look good on us. Earrings look a little weird, you know, on us. But still, to present yourself in a way to your wife and, and the settings in which you do that, that keep it fresh and exciting and new for them. And then the final piece in that is stay focused on your spouse's needs. Focusing on what your mate needs instead of making sure that your mate gives you everything that you want will make all the difference. In a relationship where each partner is just, they are just determined to give their mate whatever would bring them pleasure that's going to be a great love life. And the ones where that's in reverse, where it's, I'm going, to, I'm going to see how much I can get out of this and try and make sure you're always meeting my needs. Those are the ones that are going to, going to malfunction. Now, the truth be told, the stuff that we've been talking about, we can all agree and say, yeah, that's the way it ought to be. That's, that's what I want. That's, that's what I'm after. But the truth is, for most people, what we've talked about does not describe our relationships. It doesn't describe our marriages doesn't describe the past. And the question is, why? I mean, what God designed is good. And His plan works. It absolutely works. And yet, I know from, from just life experiences and interacting with people, that what we're talking about is not what most people live in. Where does all of our brokenness and dysfunction come from? Well, I want to close with saying a word about that. The fifth and final truth is this, to realize that most sexual brokenness begins with our eyes and with our minds, not with our bodies. It's not what we're doing wrong in the bedroom. It's what we're doing wrong with our eyes and our ears and our thoughts. I love how Peterson in the message translation gives us the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 when Jesus says this, you know the next commandment pretty well too. And then he quotes the commandment. Don't go to bed with another spouse. But then he elaborates by saying, But don't think that you have preserved your virtue by simply staying out of bed. That's a great line, isn't it? Don't think you have preserved your virtue by simply staying out of bed with another man's spouse. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Don't you know that's the truth? Those leering looks that you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. He says it's, it's where you let your eyes go and your thoughts go that get you in far more trouble. And in the same sermon, Jesus goes on to say in the next chapter, Your eye is a lamp that provides light for the body. 
It's like this is the window that determines what comes into your brain here. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And of course, Paul goes on to say of what we're talking about, run, run from sexual sin, for no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one. We don't get in trouble first and foremost because of what happens in the bedroom. We get in trouble because of what we're willing to look at and look at again and linger on and listen to and think about and dream about because those thoughts, those dreams are what open the door for us to eventually do things that we swore and thought that we would never do. And in our culture, this comes, the, the, the doorways for these actions come in so many different forms. I'll say a word about two or three specifics that, are, that we really need to be alert to. We're, we're all keenly aware of the epidemic problem of pornography and how that becomes a doorway to just all kinds of bondage. And it, it really does become a doorway for many to just total addiction. And, and we know how much that has affected the culture. It's wrecking marriages. And now those issues have spilled over into teen culture in such a big way. But I'll tell you, the ways that that's being expressed in teen culture, they're, they're morphing into, into new things that are affecting girls at the same level that they are boys. This has become a relational thing. And it's both pictures and words. But I'm telling you, now the things that are happening in teen culture, if you haven't been raising teenagers for the last five or ten years, let me tell you, you quickly get out of touch with how rapidly this is changing. And it's amazing how much porn is not a, it's not a magazine thing primarily now. And it's not even primarily a, the, the corrupting influences of porn type uh, opportunities. It's not even primarily about the computer for many now. It's about smartphones. And that's where the vast majority of this stuff is being exchanged. And it's far more personal than what Penthouse or Playboy or whoever has to offer out there. Those, those things certainly have their place and appeal. But what's happening now in the, in the teen culture and now with young adults particularly is the personal stuff that's being exchanged. And now there's a whole range of, of smartphone apps that are designed to enable this. From Snapchat to Yik Yak, and, and I mean, I could give you a list of these that are designed. Uh, many of the apps are designed to connect you with other people who are in your immediate little circle, geographically, within a few miles of you, who are who are just ready for a hookup. I mean, there are apps that are designed just for that. You, you download this app to find out who right around you wants a hookup. And, you know, it, it can happen either physically, getting with them, or a lot of these are designed for a hookup online. And we just, we're going to either shoot video and send back and forth to each other or we'll shoot still shots. And we'll just video the most, folks, I'm talking about the most graphic things you can imagine and way beyond what you want to imagine sitting in church. And this is not the bad kids. Or it's not exclusive to the bad kids. This is just kids. This is bad kids, good kids, church kids, youth group kids. This is just kids. This is, you wouldn't believe how much this is the norm. And this has become so pervasive, it's led to a culture where it's like, it's no big deal to just hook up. It's not. I mean, we've already hooked up online. We've already shown each other everything we've got. We've already done things for each other in virtual fashion. So it's really not that big a deal. You know, we've already seen each other's business. We've already done all these things for each other. And now it's so natural to hook up. Now, the adult version of that is not so terribly different. 
the adult version of these things is starting more frequently along the lines of Facebook private messaging and texting and private and, and, you know, beginning to develop relationships. And it's amazing how much of that revolves around the exchange of pictures, which lead to physical relationships. But you see where this starts. It starts with unhealthy communication and what we allow our eyes to be exposed to. And as parents, oh, we, we've just got to be super vigilant. I'm going to make a statement that there probably won't be three people in the room that will agree with me. And I don't care. I'm just going to say it straight. If you had to choose between the dangers associated with keeping your teenager's room stocked with beer and pot or giving them unfettered 24-hour-a-day access to the Internet, you'd be safer with a beer and pot. You would do less damage with the booze and the pot than you will by giving totally unrestricted, unmonitored access to the Internet. I would simply reference the last passage that I read. Run from sexual sin. Because it does more damage to the body than any other sin there is. Hey, I hate booze and pot. I'm not for that at all. I use that as a point of comparison to say as dangerous as those things are and as inviting as they are for teens, they are not as appealing, nor as deadly and dangerous and addictive as porn and all the expressions of that. And oh, by the way, this stuff is growing new tentacles at a rate that's just hard for us to comprehend. I remember going to a conference just a few years ago in Atlanta. It was a ministry conference. And in one of the seminars, the speaker was a Christian expert in the field of pornography and trying to battle the, the places where it's doing so much damage in the church and in America. And one of the things that the guy said, that I just it stuck in my mind because I just couldn't figure out how to file it away, what this meant. He said, in the porn industry, the, the primary movers and shakers, the, the big money people who, who are making the decisions about what porn's going to do to continue to rake in billions of dollars, he said, they have come to the conclusion that they have virtually saturated the male half of the market. I mean, that thought alone is disturbing. They just said, we, we realize we've got so many men and boys addicted to porn that it's going to kind of be a diminishing return for us to try and capture more of the male market because we've already got most of it. And so he said they've made a very intentional decision that they are going to begin to shift their focus to now try and capture the female half of the, the potential market that's out there. And I remember hearing that thinking, well, that's not going to work. I mean, not that it's right or good, but it's kind of easier to understand guys who are far more wired to objects and action that it's so much easier. And guys who are wired for sight, it's so easy to see how guys get sucked into porn and get addicted to that because it allows them to objectify women. The whole thing of, of interacting with porn, it's very impersonal for guys. It's how guys can lie to themselves and say, well, I'm not doing it hurting anyone. You know, th this, isn't, this isn't doing any damage. This is just... You know, it's not a person, it's just, it's more of an object, and so they just get sucked into this. But I'm like, I don't see how that's going to work for women, because they're not as wired for sight, and there's just nothing about their wiring that makes porn really super appealing for them. And I don't, I don't see how they're going to succeed at that. But the thing that stuck, that I, I always wondered what they're going to do with that is, that they're going to have to personalize this to reach the women. It's going to have to take on a relational aspect for women to get pulled in. 
And holy smoke, here we are four or five years later, and it's happened. It's happened on a massive scale. Part of it is happening in the younger culture because it is relational. It is literally relational. The porn is not personal. It's not images of strangers. It's images of us being sent back and forth and the words that go with that that promise a bunch of empty garbage. That's happening in the youth culture. But I want to tell you where it's happening incredibly effectively, maybe even on a bigger scale among adults, and I never saw it coming. I can answer in four words. Great example. Fifty Shades of Grey. An entire, entirely new genre of porn. It has its own name. It's called mommy porn. And it is that. It was designed for women. It was porn designed for women. And it has been so effective... More than 100 million copies of the books have sold in the last four years since it was written. It is now among the ten biggest sellers of all books in the history of the world in four years' time. And it's porn. It's BDSM porn. For those of you, and and trust me, I I hadn't read the books, I'm not going to read the books. Hadn't seen the movie, I'm not going to see the movie. But I've been smart enough to read about it because it has swept the West like a wildfire. And the storyline is pretty simple and straightforward. A good-looking billionaire and a young woman who's a virgin, they get really interested in each other. This billionaire is a quirky guy. He's into every form of bondage and physical pain that you can tie to sex. That's how he's lived his life. And so he pursues this woman. He stalks this woman. He gets this woman. He strips her of her virginity. And he does to her the things that he's been doing to women all along. And this storyline, as shocking as it sounds, women can't get enough. And that storyline, somebody pointed this out, and they're right on the money. If you take the storyline that I just described, but the protagonist... The, the male role model that everybody's hot for. If we just change just a little bit about him, instead of being the good-looking billionaire that he is, we let him live in a run-down trailer park on food stamps, we're going to make him the, vi- the villain of law and order. He's going to be that creep that we all celebrate seeing him go to jail. But because he's a good-looking billionaire, he can do anything he wants to. He can be a stalker. He can be abusive. He can be worthy of being locked up. And we can't wait to get the next book. We can't wait till the movie hits the big screen. It's exciting. Ladies, you swallowed it. Hook, line, and sinker. Those of you who have gone there just as much as the men ever bought into to the other version of porn. And I want to ask you this question for the ladies who have bought into this. And it is popular in church culture, by the way. It is so popular on the eastern shore. You, you can't go to a restaurant leaving here today and ask ten women, that have you read or, uh, or seen the movie Fifty Shades of Grey without having a bunch of them say yes. I'm telling you, it's everywhere. And for the ladies who right now are mad at me for, for jumping on this one with both feet like a gorilla, I just want to ask you this question. 
when you load up to go to movie night with the other ladies for a date with Mr. Gray and all of that, you know, how we love to just make this fun. I want to ask you how cool you feel about your husband or your boyfriend saying, well, while y'all are at that, I'm going to stay home and I'm going to watch porn online for the next couple of hours. And then we can get together and just have a great evening. Nobody in their right mind is going to feel good about that and you shouldn't. The bottom line is, we are a broken people. We're like frogs in the kettle, we're like frogs in the water, and the temperature has come up so gradually, we didn't notice that we were boiling to death. It's suffocating and killing marriages, and it is robbing a younger generation of their souls and of their futures and of the potential for healthy relationships. I promise you what I'm saying today, there is no condemnation in what I'm saying. There is a longing for us to embrace God's plan and God's best. And for some, that means some lines need to be drawn, some fresh starts need to be made. For some, a long history of one relationship after another, it needs to come to an end today. And you need to begin with just committing to a relationship with Jesus and, and nobody else for a season. For some who have lived in bondage or who have toyed with junk that has taken hold of your heart, it's time to step out of that closet in that dark place and say, I'm ready for a change. Can I just tell you this to free you up in that regard? Nobody's going to be shocked when you're the next person who says, and I'm not saying this about you in a negative way, just understand there's no shock value left. It feels so huge for you to be the next guy or the next gal to go, you know what, I've gotten sucked into that. And it feels like, oh, everybody's going to see me so differently. No, we won't. We'll just look at you as a part of the masses that now go to church and don't go to church who are in bondage to this, who are operating in brokenness because of this, and to step out and say, I want some help. I want to be different, and we'll cheer instead of looking down on you. Because you're sitting in a room that's got people all around you who are struggling with this stuff. God wants us to be free. He wants us to look different than the culture around us. And we can be. But we can't stay in the closet. And we can't live like we've been living. If you've been in a cycle of repeated unhealthy relationships, you're going to need to have the help of some people around you to not repeat that cycle. If you found yourself growing in bondage to pornography, whether it's in written form or in picture form or in relational form, you're going to need the help and support of some people around you to get there. It's going to take you being willing to be vulnerable, to step into some places like CR, where nobody is shocked or upset to hear somebody go, you know what, I'm broken in this area and I need help. I mean, is that not what's happening every single week? And people are getting free, but you've got to be willing to ask for help and ask for forgiveness. Now, would you join me as we go to the Lord together in prayer? Father, you've given us this incredible gift, and we, we thank you for that. And yet we realize that in many ways we live in dark and broken places because we're not, we're not smart about how we handle what you've placed in us. And we pray, God, first of all, for forgiveness. The word says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us. Hey, if there's brokenness in this area of your life, would you just pause and confess to God where you're broken? And would you ask for his forgiveness?
And would you ask Him for the power to make a fresh, clean, new start? Lord, we thank You for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us of our sin. We thank You for His righteousness that covers us. And we pray, God, healing and protection and release for every man and woman, every boy and girl, here in this room, watching and listening online. God, we want to live free. We want to walk in the fullness of what you have for us. We want to know intimacy with you. We want to know intimacy with, with another. We want to know the joy of living life the way that you've designed it. I pray, God, that you'd help us to begin to create a new track record one step at a time starting today. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.